1: Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to uh, kick off our CIS podcast series here. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on what we're trying to achieve here. I know you're flooded with uh, podcasts and all kinds of information to, to sort through. And maybe I can help you understand what we're trying to do that we hope is useful to the folks that follow our work. So the Center for Net Security, a small but mighty nonprofit And I think one of the the reasons to pay attention to what we're doing is that we play a unique role in the cyber ecosystem. So we are the home of security best practices. That's how many of you know us, the home of things like the CIS benchmarks and the CIS controls. But many of you may not know, unless you're directly involved, is that we have a massive nationwide, 24 seven operational mission. That is, we are the home of the multi-state information sharing and analysis center as well as the election infrastructure uh, information uh, uh, sharing and analysis center. And so that gives us, you know, it's pretty unique for sort of a a, a professional advice giving organization to have such a large scale operational kind of uh, capability. And so, you know, we're in this fight 24 seven with many of you, especially if you have anything to do with state, local, tribal or territorial governments. In addition to all that, though, we're also a computing enterprise like many of you. We are working entirely from home as a result of current conditions. But even before that, you know, we're a modern computing enterprise with all the issues, all the technology challenges and the security worries and a mixed workforce that's both on site as well as working from home or anywhere around the world. We have a lot of interesting challenges too, because we have a worldwide volunteer audience. So we have to connect a lot of people to share ideas, to create the content that CIS produces. And we have the usual, in fact, maybe a larger than usual range of complicated business partnerships all across the industry and with lots of partners, both the U.S. and around the world. So, you know, we're in this game. We have to worry about all these kinds of things. So it's a... It, great opportunity for you to hear multiple sides of this problem. And I'm joined by uh, Sean Atkins, our uh, CISO, who lives and breathes these kinds of problems every day. And uh, I think uh, over time, you'll get to see we have our share of these issues. For a small company, we have an astounding range. And so we have to worry about a lot of things and face a lot of the same challenges that you face. So our hope is with that range of things that we deal with, uh, we're going to try to provide some insight and some thinking there. CIS has always been about uh, trying to uh, bring order to chaos, to simplify really complicated issues. Right, the the issues that underlie uh, cybersecurity are not trivial, but we also have a tendency to make them more complicated through the language, through the special skills that are involved, and so many people struggle. You know, this has gone from something that only a few specialists cared about to something that basically everyone has to worry about at some level. And so uh, I always often say that uh, security wizardry and security magic are great job security for old folks like me, but it's not very good public policy and it's not very useful to the economy at large. So our goal is to try and help you understand the most important things out there, right? Not confuse you or overwhelm you with all these other things, but to really give you some sense of what we think is the most important based upon our work, our partnerships, our analysis and so forth. So with that, uh, here's how we're going to start off today. I'm going to give you a quick uh, little bit of background about my, uh, my life in cybersecurity. Uh, ask Sean to do the same. And then, and, uh, for an opening topic, we're going to talk about uh, something you've probably heard a lot but maybe haven't thought deeply about, and that's cyber hygiene. And I'll, I'll frame that discussion for us. So as far as, as, far as uh, my life in cyber goes, uh, I'm at uh, 43 years, I think, now and counting uh, most of it uh, at the uh, National Security Agency. I started in the late 70s, uh, background in mathematics. I had no idea what this stuff was all about. And uh, so I found myself uh, um, hired into what was called the communication security intern program. Uh, primarily mathematicians uh, focused on the security of U.S. systems. And so the National Security Agency, uh, most of you think of it as the big intelligence agency, which it is, but about 10 percent or so of the agency's resources and missions are dedicated to defense. And at that time, very focused on the Defense Department. And the sort of problem of that era was really about uh, confidentiality and about cryptography. That is, security was essentially equated to uh, the strength of our mathematics. And so if we could equate the, the security of, for example, uh, uh, of our messages with the uh, difficulty of solving a hard known mathematical problem. You sort of got the benefit of centuries of the some of the greatest minds in history thinking about how to solve those problems. And uh, lucky me, in 1981, I shifted career fields from math to computer science. Uh, I was just fascinated by what we called back then the personal computing revolution. So the notion of having an Apple II Plus on my desk was just astounding. And it took computing from, kind of this abstract idea where there were people in a back room with some big machine and I would feed them cards and get printouts back to something that sat on your desk. And I was just hooked and fascinated. So uh, lucky me, I got to ride the wave that we now call cybersecurity and watch how the problem of security morphed from a real uh, tight focus on cryptography and mathematics to this much broader focus on the information, on communications, on you know, the whole range of things that we have to worry about. And it shifted from this focus on the government and how our government is fighting their government or trying to get advantage uh, to this thing that really underlies our economy, right? That is, uh, everyone has to worry about it. And you know, the rate of criminality, the all the issues around social media security have made this just a mainstream activity. So that's been my life in cyber. Now, the last five years plus, I've been at the Center for Internet Security in my second career, and uh, you know, it's part of the really this interesting and really effective nonprofit. Uh, organization. And for me, this is just a continuation of life in public service. So a chance to be involved in these big themes, try to help people uh, sort out what's important and what they ought to do about it. Uh, So with that, I'd like to introduce our Uh, CISO here at uh, CIS, Uh, Sean Atkins, who, again, as I said, he'll bring a unique perspective, and I think one that's shared by many folks who would listen to a podcast like this, right? You know, it's great to hear the old security guys talk, but it's more interesting to hear
0: about someone who actually has to deal with this problem. Sean? Oh, thank you, Tony, Uh, much appreciated. Uh, So a little bio, um, due to the accent, I lived in England for about 18 years, moved back to the United States. really started to pursue and i had started uh not in computer science or cyber security but in uh business uh did a business degree did an mba and it was in that mba that there was a specialization for technology management and the uh the book that converted me um was uh uh, business data networks and telecommunications by uh raymond panko Uh, and i read that and i just kind of just fell in love Uh, it was networking Um, I had no idea as moving into the technology management specialization, uh, but I was hooked from there. Um, From there, I got an opportunity to be an IT auditor, a very small uh, regional um, distributor here in the northeast of the United States. Um, Did IT audit and that all came about really due to Sarbanes-Oxley. So in 2004, Mm -hmm. uh, really section 404 came into play and uh the company needed somebody with some acumen in both business and it and i was building that and never looked back so from there i moved into state government had a seven-year career basically in state government um working multiple it positions all the way up to uh, security manager um implementing uh, PeopleSoft. so that was an interesting application um and a new defined project that really took me through kind of the software development lifecycle and adding security. So at that time, the adage of secure by design was really trying to come into the fray, as it were. And uh, now we're moving into our DevOps, DevSecOps era, um, I wish I had it back then, but, you know, lessons learned, we're moving forward. Um, post the state career, moved into high-tech manufacturing and working with the Department of Defense, um, and then now I've been with the CIS for just about three years um, in the CISO role, again, loving everything we do, uh, trying to advance the career, and, uh, you know, working with Tony and others in the organization to really start to frame the underlying issue and to Tony's point, you know, as we mentioned previously, we're, we're kind of living it. So it's not only are we providing the best practice, but it's also implementation as well. Um, so with that, Tony, uh, basic cyber hygiene. <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, happy to talk about this. It's, uh, so this is a, a topic I, I used to say, uh, uh, basic cyber hygiene, often stated, never designed or never defined. You, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of a catchphrase that has a certain appeal to it. And lots of folks have talked about it. For, actually, I, I dug back through my notes, Sean, believe it or not. The first time I made reference to it was in uh, a presentation I gave in 2004. Oh, and it, it may have been earlier, but I just don't remember. And we called it network hygiene. So at say we'd all trained ourselves. The network is everything. And you know, that was kind of the, okay. the mantra of the day, as opposed to cyber is everything. Yeah. And um, it was based on my observation. So my interest in this idea and it's important, really goes back to, to, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So I, I mentioned, uh, you know, 35 years of the National Security Agency, all of it in, in uh, cyber defense, what we would now call cyber defense, and all of that really in security testing mm-hmm. for defense. So the things that we kind of take for granted in the industry, uh, you know, penetration testing, red team, zero days, you know, that was my life. Uh, originally finding them in mathematics, primarily around protocols and encryption schemes and randomization. And then I mentioned in the early 80s, shifting to computer science. And that really uh, gave me the opportunity to think about and see a lot of things break. So if I could if I could divide up my career conceptually, be basically the first third, and this is not linear, but conceptual, was about learning the craft of finding flaws in systems, right? How could systems be uh, manipulated to take advantage from an attacker's perspective. So my job was to do that in a friendly way on behalf of the U.S. government against U.S. government systems. And uh, so did that, you know, both, both uh, sort of, I, I spent a lot of time staring at other people's software for a living, right, looking for flaws, uh, involved in both uh, uh, software testing, uh, sort of hypothesis testing, and then uh, field testing. So live operational, you know, again, what we would call penetration testing today. So that first third was really sort of learning the craft, right? Learning it from masters and, you know, uh, learning the technology and and what to do about it. I moved into management kind of for my second third, and that was the chance to supervise work, to train other people, to connect with other managers. And what that gave me was a chance to see this failure at scale, right? See, you know, eventually my, my capstone job was running what was called vulnerability analysis and operations. So think of it as, Everybody at the agency who is finding flaws for defense, right, as part of the defensive mission. So, seven, eight hundred people, every skill you could imagine, right. When when nations attack each other, uh, there there are no holes, right. It's a, it's the, the term is full spectrum. So it's not sort of just packets over the wire. It's about signals and mathematics and you know all the the complications that come with this uh, uh, with this kind of thinking. And so i got to see failure at very large scale i got to see it as you know here's what we demonstrate by going out to test the u.s government the defense department and we're observing this kind of stuff but i can say um with a straight face i'm one of the few lifelong defenders who also lived inside an intelligence agency and so got to watch the nation state fight you know what we did to others what others did to us what people did to each other and so got to really see a lot of things that were not generally available to the public. And the conclusion that I drew from this, especially, uh, say, concerning the Defense Department or the U.S. government or the U.S. industry at large, was why are we seeing the same problems over and over again? Right. Right? There was an implicit part of our business model. We didn't think of it that way, but I, I came to think of it this way. You know, if we just told people what they're doing wrong, they would be so inspired or educated or ashamed, they would immediately fix it. Right. And boy, much to my, much to my chagrin, that, that has never turned out to be true, yeah. because the, it turns out the psychology and the technology and the issues right, of solving problems is a lot different than pointing them out. And it's, it's important to point them out. It's important to understand them, right? Look for root cause, look for commonality and so forth. But just telling people isn't good enough. And that's what I observed. Right. And, you know, other people drew a conclusion that said, why are why are our defenders so lazy? Don't they care? (laughs) And I couldn't buy into that because I got to know lots of great people right, who ran systems for the U.S. government for a living. And wow, these are amazing people really working hard right, with very complicated, fragile technology, with really determined, highly motivated attackers coming after them. And so it came you know, what what I observed was we're seeing the same problems because we haven't built the right kind of foundations for defense. So so I started speaking publicly in about year 2000. And uh, this was a big shift for NSA to get involved in the public, uh, both because it became a more public problem, but because it was a chance to share lessons learned. And again, I started to get overwhelmed by questions because people were just sort of oh, here's an opportunity to ask someone that you know we, we'd never had to talk to before. And people would ask me things like, well, what do I do about this problem? And I would say, hmm, why? And I would hesitate because you could tell I never had the responsibility to fix a problem. Right. My job was to point out problems. And boy, that's great work. You can get it, right? Yep. There's nothing better than pointing out other people's <laughs> problems and walking away. So, But I, I just felt like, and this is the last third of my career. What are we going to do about this? Right? Why do I need 100 people to tell me I'm not patching my systems well. Why do I need these incredibly scarce, valuable resources to tell me I'm not doing the basics in my defense? And so how do I how do I translate that? So, so this became something to think about, right? This idea of what is really the problem and are we uh, keeping people from, from getting to solutions because they're overwhelmed? And that was the conclusion I reached, right? It's, right. it's not that people didn't care, it's that they're overwhelmed. They, they don't know where to focus. The industry is full of really bright people who speak a different language than most, most people do. Uh, and so there, you know there's a whole jargon problem. The technology is complicated, fast changing. The attackers are changing all the time. And so there's a need to try and sort through all that, right? to make sense of this problem. But I became convinced, and this is the, the setup for today, is really about the importance of a few foundational things. So having, again, lived with nation state attackers, I really came to appreciate the importance of visibility. Uh, Attackers don't like to be seen. And the more visibility you have, right? Someone, Sean, you know, who's, for example, who's responsible for an enterprise. You know, if you don't know what you have, it's pretty hard to defend. It's pretty hard to figure out when something's changed that you didn't approve. It's pretty hard to understand what's the risk when I get new information. Well, how many of those do I have out there? And are they configured in a bad way? If you don't have that level of visibility, then you're you're pretty well hosed in defense. And by the way, the attacker knows that and takes advantage of that, right? And skirts around the edges and hides in the noise and the uncertainty. So your ability to take some basic steps is really, really important. And so this idea of, you know, can we identify that set of things, right? Can we help people focus in on both what is important to do, but also foundational? And, you know, there are there are very sophisticated attackers, right? With lots of money and time and technology. And so, you know, you're gonna have to, but, you're going to have to deal with that at some point, at least for lots of industries. But if you can't manage the basics, you can't even get started, right? You're paralyzed and you're frozen. So this hygiene thing has has always really mattered to me, again, since the early 2000s, and I think has been an important part of, um, you know, the the message of uh, CIS. And we don't want to trivialize, right? We, we want to put it in its proper place, right? How important the foundation it forms. And so, so that's kind of my background, sort of what I thought, you know, what led me to think about this. And Sean and I have, have had these kind of conversations, you know, over our, our, our few brief years here together. But if you could share a little bit about the, the CISO's perspective on that, Sean, maybe either right. from the past, you know, as an auditor. So you got to come and observe, right? And I'm sure you didn't see, uh, all top-notch, super-secured, you know, things. And then you come into an enterprise like CIS, right? And with a chance, with fresh eyes, to look at a security company and see the kind of things they've done at the, at the foundational level. So any, any thoughts from that? No,
0: absolutely. That? I mean, you know, kind of the same perspective. You've seen it from do, two different uh, viewpoints. You know, with the yeah. IT audit is to, you know, assess and review according to a set structure. You know, is it an underlying foundational framework? Is it a certification? And, you know, aligning to compliance. Uh, Again, the adage is compliance doesn't equal security, but it, you know, it helps in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So with our basic hygiene. And so when I saw from an audit perspective to now where it's, you know, ultimate responsibility uh, for security and its implementation is You know, the the understanding of both the um, identification and the telemetry of underlying systems and data. So one of the things I've always, the adage I've done with my basic hygiene is kind of follow the data. In a lot of cases, you know, identifying underlying systems, people, Mm -hmm. utilization, storage, encryption, transportation, things things of those needs. That allows Mm -hmm. us then to start identifying underlying criticality, especially if we've got a good grasp and what unfortunately some don't on data classification. So if I understand the data and kind of its underlying value to the organization, and I can map that through underlying systems, that gives me a way to build that telemetry. You know, What from a risk perspective, what from a threat identification perspective, who is basically gonna be looking for the information that I've left, whether that's in production, manufacturing, you know, whatever parenthetic or industry vertical that you're gonna be in, that you know then it becomes a consideration of building the underlying foundation of what does my hygiene look like Because i think tony and and this is kind of the question it has to be contextualized i think there's underlying foundational best practices we all have to do um, i think that you know as we talk about uh, the cis controls and implementation group one that gets us to that point where we've this is our basic hygiene we have to do these things but it has to be done in a way that's contextualized, and really one of the elements, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated, but is is risk management, is identifying the underlying risk, in order for me to proportionally attribute underlying resources for protection, and the implementation of control that then I can consider the basically the monitoring, auditing of those controls to see whether or not I'm you know am I hygienic and kind of in our position, as it were. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. I mean, what you're, you're, you're starting
1: with a plea of, you, you have to understand your business, yeah. right? You, you have to understand what is important to it, who has it, who controls it, where does it move? You know, all those kinds of, and, and that's that's a given, right? You you need to do that in any case, uh, for, for lots of reasons. One, to run the business efficiently, but also to deal with the regulatory and all the things that you know, that are, are part of that. And then balancing that with a a technology need, right? That is someone actively wants to undo that, cause it harm, take from it something. And so again, if you don't, if you don't have an understanding of that, I think that's, then, then you really are, are paralyzed in terms of defense. I remember one, one conversation uh, talking, uh, it was a defense department conversation when I was still back at the agency. And, and, you know, there was a kind of a, uh, in the in the defense department, right, all this evolved out of war fighting. And so there's a kind of a war fighting mentality. Yep. And the idea was, you know, and I remember one of the senior, the senior folks, you know, multi-star person talking about this, and they wanted to kind of treat it the same way. And the idea there was, well, we have to decide what our, you know, we, we have crippled ourselves because we're trying to protect everything. Correct. And so we're not protecting the things that really matter. Yep. And, uh, and so that, that's what they wanted to do, right? And we just leave the rest of it I, I think, unprotected. And, and, and I disagreed. So my dad was an army sergeant, so he would have been proud of me to, to, to hear me disagree with the general officer. But my point was, I said, um, the way I would look at it, sir, is that everything deserves some level of protection. Some things deserve a lot more because of the consequences, the, the risk, the criticality to the execution of our mission But if, you know, in in security, we would love to neatly partition out. Well, this is critical and this is not critical, right? This is inside my boundary and this is not inside my boundary. And anyone and and a risk assessment methodology kind of takes you through that. Right. But but anyone that believes they've done that neat partitioning, you know, 100% correctly is (laughs) is in for a surprise at some point, right? Because something's going to change. And so a prudent approach is to say, you know, what's the basics that should underlie my entire IT infrastructure to support my business in parallel with the discussion which you led, right? Which is, yeah, but what really matters to my business and who has control over it, what creates it, what moves it, where's it stored, how's it destroyed? You know, what are the critical things that, and and what what are the real consequences to my business, right? The loss of income, the loss of reputation, you know, uh, the health and safety of my clients or my employees. And again, a good business needs to deal with those issues in any case, right? But the challenge is tying it to technology, right? And not not sort of diving into technology and, you know, counting things before you really have an understanding of what matters there. So, so you know, I started this with a with a kind of a joke about uh, we've heard the the term cyber hygiene a lot, but not many definitions of it. Sure. Right. When you dig into them, I tried to collect them over the years and there have been a few attempts, but mostly it's, well, we need better cyber hygiene, for example, patching our systems for right. example, doing this. Uh, and, and that's great. You know, it helps raise awareness, but it doesn't lead you to an action plan. <laughs> Any thoughts from your perspective, Sean, what sort of really should be in there if we were going to try to tighten that up a bit?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think it's, um, when we talk about the underlying action plan, I think there's, you know, to the point of the vision. So I'm the one way I look at it is you know, I do, let's say I do a business impact analysis and I'm looking at the underlying foundation of the business itself and what's critical. Um, so whether I'm applying NIST internal report, 8179 for criticality analysis, or we're just doing that based on the respective business units and proportionally dividing that up. Cause you know, every business unit is going to be more important than the next, when you try and do that in that fashion, but there's, you know, understanding the business I think is, is critical. I think to add to the underlying information and telemetry piece that you mentioned is the interconnection between identifying the underlying asset and the true value within the organization. So without that, okay. it's then not able. We're you know as an organization, we're not able to sufficiently apply the right controls. And when I talk about controls, because there's to your point, you know, there's this difference between awareness. And then implementation and effective control and really metrics around whether or not it's sufficient, supporting. And it gets to another question that you know we can discuss is how much is enough in a lot of cases. That's right. another question that people ask is have I done enough to protect the underlying asset? And you, you get to another adage with, you know, risk is I'm not gonna pay for that particular asset, I'm not gonna put a you know, a million dollars to protect ten thousand dollars worth of information. right? It doesn't make sense. There's no return on investment. It's not going to work. And so I think the communication and the requirement between kind of an IT-focused, business-focused with this, again, I'll use the secure by design analogy, but you certainly need a champion in that particular position in order to reiterate the requirement. And those requirements, again, we could look at implementation groups, we could look at the CIS controls, we could look at NIST CSF, All of these things give you kind of the map but not the directions in terms of implementation because that Mm -hmm. is very contextual based on your underlying business processes what am i using within my organization and it gets to the fact that we then inventory and control and understand you maybe utilizing the data analogy that i'd used previously to flow that through an organization now i understand the business interact then with it to understand the underlying critical value of those particular assets, and then what does protection look like? And I think, Tony, you would agree, security is not about applying tools, and it's not about, you know, um, and again, I'll use kind of the vernacular of today is, just because it's machine learning and AI enabled doesn't mean it's necessarily (laughs) gonna work, right? I mean, (laughs) using advanced algorithms and statistics and probability and everything along those lines, but that doesn't mean necessarily it's secure because I come back to the fact that I can apply every tool in the world, but if no one's looking, no one's aware, and no one it really understands the value of that data, now I've just basically lost my underlying infrastructure. I do not have control because that's the piece that I think fits in there, is the underlying awareness of that information and utilizing it in a way that allows us to make risk-based decisions about what works, what doesn't work. And then what you would consequently do is gap analysis in terms of determining what am I missing? And, you know, you can, and I think to your point, you know, I could, uh, as an auditor, let's say go in from the past and make a recommendation and say, you're missing a password policy. What does that mean, you know, for the organization? Does it mean I just write something down and that's it? You know, is it the implementation? Am I talking about two factor? Am I talking about single sign on, password strength, Mm -hmm. things of that nature? And it gets to that piece where you maybe miss the underlying context, but also the level of detail of implementation. Because it seems so easy for me to say to any part of the organization, implement this particular control, but without the context of the underlying operating system, middleware, applications, you know, kind of going through the the hierarchy, as it were, um, what does that mean for the organization? It, implement encryption, you know, at the database level. Well, what does that mean? You know, Is that going to have any uh, recurrence on the underlying service? Is it going to take too long for the service to generate information that's useful? Because at the end of the day, it's all about business value. And if we can't provide that with the context of security, um, it's a tough sell, uh, if you know what I mean, to uh, at least board-level, C-level executives.
1: Um, yeah. Well, I think you you asked a critical question in there, uh, which is the how much is enough question. Right. And I can tell you, as a, as a lifelong security attacker, right, for defense, yeah. we we were trained to give this answer more. <laughs> right. Whatever you're doing, you need to do more, which um, might ha, has a certain level of usefulness in a security sense, yeah. but is completely unhelpful in a business sense. Right. Right. You're not going to bankrupt your company, as you said, in the name of, you know, better security. And so it's actually, again, the the perspective of of history in here. We're at a really interesting point in time where this is becoming, I call it the the, the mainstreaming of cybersecurity, right? From the domain of wizards to the domain of business decision-making. And and, and individuals make decisions along these lines too, right? They have to decide, is it safe to to go to this website, to, to give up my credit card information, and so forth. But they're doing that without much information. Sure. And that's the challenge, right? We we are asking them to to make complicated decisions without really very good information. So you and and I think your point, uh, Sean, I'll share with. You. So you know, there's a there's a sort of a mantra that has been around for for a while in security, right? Security is not an event; it's a process, right? But I think it's actually more than that. I think that's where you were going. It's really about a machine, right? right? I always talk about the the machinery of cybersecurity, you know, and the machine is fed by information. information about my assets, my attackers, my business dependencies, and all these things are changing. And so the machine, right, needs to be designed with this dynamic in mind. There's no, there's no, checklists matter, but checklists aren't the answer, right? They are a stage along the way. And they allow you to sort of codify things in a way that's very accessible. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're building a dynamic machine that you're adjusting on the fly, right? You're, you're, you're uh, constantly aware of things that really matter and if something happened in a way that you should care about or that should be reported up or should be factored into other decisions. And so, and when you think of it as designing machine, then you think of all these things, right? What are the inputs? What's the efficiency? Okay. What are the, you know, what what drives the decision-making? And when does the output of the machine need to go here versus there? That's, those are the kind of issues that you were walking your way through there and talking about, right? Okay. And I think what this also says as this becomes more, uh sort of in its rightful place so old guys like me you know again wizardry is great job security but but uh but that hasn't solved the problem so i'm willing to give up some job security frankly both because i'm at the end of my career but also because it's the right answer to say well then how do we create this business machinery well that part of that is about speaking to people in the language that works for them sure. right so we're not going to train every executive in this economy to become a cyber wizard right <laughs> even though we sort of attempt to do that and we're you know we're not going to train every cyber wizard by the way to become a business expert but there's a, a need for a common ground around language absolutely you know they, and again that in framed in a way i think hygiene is part of that right it's something that resonates it, and it's an attempt to uh, I'll, I'll i'll stretch a little bit here but when i talk about hygiene i've written about it or spoken about it you know a lot of it's about uh, a translation right it's speaking uh, so, so we accept, and, and obviously a lot of this comes from, from things like public health or personal health, you know, washing my hands, getting shots, avoiding risky locations, right? And, and we do those, but the sort of loftier way to think of them is they're actually a translation from complicated science into behaviors, right? Yep. Easily described accessible behaviors that we all accept implicitly that there's science under the hood. Someone is studying this. And uh, when I engage in these behaviors, I don't need a fancy risk assessment, you might say, in cyber word. I, I don't look at my hands and say, you know what, I should get them tested to see if there are any number of germs on them before I go wash them. Right. I just wash them. Yep. Right. The cost is low enough. The, the, uh, the trouble I take is low enough. And it's helpful enough in the general case. I don't need to have details, but I take on faith that someone has studied the transmission vectors of disease, you know, believes that at certain points in a day, given certain activities, it makes perfectly good sense to wash uh, for certain occupations, right? We require it because we believe it interrupts potential transmission, uh, you know, things that would could cause uh, effects further down the line. And so this idea of, a, of an accessible set of behaviors, uh, you know, to your point about being specific, right? You do need some context, but you don't need to sort of overthink certain behaviors and i think that's what would kind of separate hygiene from sort of more uh, tailored more nuanced more specific you know more bespoke ways to think about these kinds of problems so so accessibility uh explainability i think is a big part of anything we would do in, with hygiene right it has to be explainable to people and whether sp- and in their language right. is it auditors is it executives is it average citizens trying to make decisions, those all have to be a part of it, right? We can't explain through wizardry and trust me and things like that. So there has to be some notion of that. But this this idea backed by science and this translation, one example I give, it's a bit of a stretch here, but I'm old enough to remember the original Smokey the Bear campaigns, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. And hey, I'm a good citizen. I want to prevent forest fires. I tell people it wasn't until I became a Boy Scout where in the Boy Scout Handbook was a procedure right, a very prescriptive set of steps on how to safely extinguish a campfire, right, you know, you get water, you have a stick to mix the ashes, right, you wait for, a, you know, the entire thing to cool down, and I get that, I need and I needed, right. you know, you always convince yourself, if I throw a bucket of water on this campfire, I'll be okay, well, you know, there's lots of evidence to tell us that's not true, and so the the step from sort of general awareness to specific action is really important, and that's why you know at CIS we've, we've emphasized this idea of having a definition. You know what is you know what is basic hygiene? Can we agree on that? Because only then can we define an action plan, or we can can we define prescriptive steps, or we can provide a basis for comparison, right? I think a big part of the, the future cyber world is about what I'll call. Uh, Comparative analysis or negotiation is probably better, right? Oh, you want to be in my supply chain and you're seeing this play out in the industry now. Uh, tell me what practices you you know, you know will have in place to protect the data that enables our supply chain to operate. Right. Because supply chains are all about control, control paths and data, right? The movement of data and the control of information. And so, you know, the expectation is if you come, if I'm bringing you into my environment, I have to have, be comfortable with the things that you're doing to protect the information that we need to share. So you need, you know, and and you see the industry grappling. In fact, I know you get to deal with these, right? Supply chain surveys and third party risk documents and, you know, pages and pages of things to fill out and, uh, you know, evidence to provide. And, uh, you know, uh, you live and breathe this stuff. And I'm sure it's a bit of a pain. I imagine all the companies that don't live and breathe security. And what are they doing? You know are they struggling giving up paying someone else to fill in the paperwork for them you know how will and that doesn't seem reasonable right in terms of yeah. the sort of if you can, if you think of it as a public health health issue you know sort of large scale applies to almost everyone then how do i make this accessible to to other
0: uh, other folks so it, it yeah, go ahead Sean. no absolutely Kenny. And it, you make a critical point there because what I've experienced and, and, you know, we've been doing this now with uh, supply chain security becoming, you know, a, a large part now of what NIST is providing in terms of their guidance, right. is there's no context to the questionnaires that have been issued. So I'm getting the Got same it. questionnaire that AWS would be issued and if I'm running my entire okay. <laughs> well, and I'm using a very small portion of what we do here at CIS in terms of our products and services, those are, you know, completely mismatched in terms of you know, 400 questions in order to do every level of detail when I may not have the same impact to your organization from a risk perspective with the information that you either share with us compared to an AWS. And so that's a huge mm-hmm. part of things that we internally have had to change is because we use the same questionnaire, but when we were getting these ones back from multiple companies and it was, you know, this question makes no sense on the product and services that we provide. It, You know, I can right. answer NA, it's not applicable. So 75% of all the questions are NA. You know, it's, mm. I, it's a little bit more simple. I mean, you still have to go through and do it, but, it's, um, but I don't think you're getting to the heart of the underlying position that this company is within your uh, supply chain, because you're trying to treat everybody the same. And when you do that, you lose the context of, mm-hmm. Well, what products or services yeah. are you providing to me and what risk does that expose me to? Because it's looking like we're just painting the same risk as just the supply chain risk when it's not necessarily the case.
1: Right. I mean, this is back to your uh, contextualize, the, you know, understanding your own business, right? Right. Uh, so, as you said, a, a supply chain decision is not a random thing. Right. You know, that is, there's a some sort of business purpose there you know, and a lot of this, uh, you know, from my perspective, a lot of ideas were pioneered by the uh, automotive industry. I mean, decades ago and this notion of just-in-time manufacturing, Mm -hmm. and then uh, sort of major retailers looking at things like, why do I store stuff in a warehouse? Why don't I, you know, give access to a certain amount of data so that my suppliers know when supplies get low enough, they should just ship stuff directly to the store. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so this idea of efficiencies here, but in every one of those, it's about understanding your business. Right. Right. And so what's the minimum amount of information or control, control paths I need to, to establish in order to achieve this business purpose. Right. And what were the possible consequences, right? Of, you know, do I want to give someone direct access to my sort of in, uh, my overall retail database? Probably not. Right. Because they only need this much information to make that decision that I can build into my supplier okay. contract. And so what's the minimum that they need to, you know, to pull, then do I make it available in some different way? Right. A lot of these also were, were hot issues for us in the Defense Department in the, what was called a coalition war fighting. You know, there's sort of a I, I know this is not your world, Sean, but you had a little little time in the DoD, right? the idea was, I mean, ever since the late 90s, doctrine has been we never go to war without our friends. Correct. And by the way, we don't know who our friends are until the day before we go to war exactly. and half of our friends can't trust each other. Right. So you have these very complicated business relationships at the same time, you're trying to combine different partners view so you can safely move expensive and scarce people and material from place to place. Right. So what's you know the, the, the government term is that what's what's my common command and control picture? right? You know, and how do I generate that from multiple partners without really revealing everything? Right. Without without putting us all in one wide open, gigantic network. So but as you said, it's really about the understanding of business purpose here. And if you don't understand that, well, then it's easier to send a 40 page supply chain question to everybody and hope for the best right right and so that doesn't really doesn't allow you to make sort of sensible decisions about that
0: yeah no that's
1: that's so uh i will share with you this was a little before you joined us sean there was an earlier what we call cyber hygiene campaign at cis about the time i was joining in 2015. it had a nice ring to it you know it was based on the cis controls uh what we now call cis controls And at that time i was uh controls one through five right this is basic hygiene yeah. and it was a super simplification and there was a catchy phrase I had to go look it up count configure control patch and repeat right. and so that was the sort of equivalent of you know uh, you only you can prevent forest fires I think you know well intended lots of people it was very accessible understandable uh, and it it brought this notion of sort of basic visibility and control of my assets right counting them. Configuring them well, and this idea of uh, you know I'm 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 running a cycle here. I I have to keep doing this. I don't get to just do it and and fill out the form. I have to keep doing this. So there were a lot of positive things there. It didn't go very far, but it was a you know an honest attempt at this kind of philosophy that we've been discussing here. Uh, More recently, you know we've formalized that definition. You hinted earlier, and for our audience, this idea of uh, IG1 or Implementation Group One. The idea was to define a subset of what we now call the CIS controls, right? Some of you might know it by earlier names. But, you know, even that, we found that small and medium uh, enterprises struggle to get started, or they need some help. You know, they want to start with number one and work their way through to 20, correct. And that wasn't very sensible either. And so the idea was to say, you know, what are the found if we look across all the 20, at the lower level at the, what we call the safeguard or subcontrol level what's the minimum set of things that we think everyone should do right. right and these are not throw away just do these things these are foundational things upon which you can build later and so that was the idea so we picked that out through analysis and uh, you know that that turns out to have been a huge hit because people needed some sort of an on-ramp or a more accessible starting point uh, more recently, We've bolstered the analysis. Why this set of things and not some other set of things? We're always asking ourselves that question at CIS. And we've released a paper, I think end of August, called the Community Defense Model, which takes a more detailed analytic perspective, you know, using data from the Verizon data Research report with uh, what many will understand, the uh, miter Attack framework, and sort of pulling them together. And roughly, I'll cartoon it a bit. For the most uh, important set of attacks that we're actually seeing in real life. And if we break them down into their lowest level elements to the miter attack framework, then what's the value of individual control steps or actions to interrupt, detect, prevent, et cetera, those attacks? Yep. And so we have, you know, what we've provided is an analytic basis that's pretty strong. We're very we feel very good about that says, you know, we've identified a pretty good foundational set that is, uh, again, within reach. Um, a lot of it can be done with tools that you already have or that are, you know, again, within the marketplace and would allow you to have this foundation of defense. But, you know, our goal has been to uh, tighten up that, that definition so that we can spur others to action, right, to make that a part of the way we think about that, this problem. Definitely. Um, Sean, just a, another line of questioning here I want to get your perspective on. So when I was carrying these ideas in government, you know, sort of the predecessor ideas, uh, people would would listen very politely and think, "well that's that's very clever and that's important." But what about that nation state attacker? Right. What about those APTs? Yep. Yeah, that's hygiene stuff. That's great. I love to wash my hands and yeah yeah. But what about this? You know,
0: what about this other thing? Any any thoughts on there? Oh, well, I mean, I think we've done with the community defense model. Uh, And, you know, we've been using that obviously internally um, to contextualize those types of attacks. So one of the things that we've done in terms of ingesting other threat data from CrowdStrike and other sources is starting to look at those tactics, techniques, and procedures where let's say IG1 and the underlying controls are in play. Those gives us the underlying foundational control and what do those prevent? And what's our most likely APT that would be looking, you know, based on their tactics, based on who they, you know, are interested in. Let me put it that way, in terms of their attack vectors and their methods of utilizing those particular right. tactics, techniques, and procedures. And so, basically, we've done the analysis there. We've gone through and aligned ourselves to MITRE ATT&CK, which is a phenomenal framework, and the integration with the controls, and then utilizing, you know, kind of the real world experience of the Verizon Data Breach uh, Report itself. Has just given more, um, I think, emphasis on the controls that we've put in place. That they're here for a reason, right? And it gives mm-hmm. me opportunity to then provide that feedback in terms of that return on investment. These are the reasons why we're doing this. And again, that has to be contextualized for the underlying industry vertical where we're seeing, you know, these uh, these particular APT groups, and in some cases, you know, organisations. Um, I think like to focus on those cause it's the, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the cool stuff within, you know, patching, uh, right. you know, we've heard about that for thirty years, <laughs> no one's doing anything about it. Let me talk about APTs yeah. and these advanced threats and things that we can do in this space. So it makes it um, a little bit more palatable or it's a great story to tell in terms of your security posture, right. but it's if it's done in a way that prevents you from implementing implementation group one, That's completely the wrong thinking because you've basically, if you're just focused on what the APT can do to your organization and their attack vectors, you're missing the underlying foundation, which those controls to implement, you know, protection against those those vectors are lost. And if you do that, you're just doing yourself a disservice Um, because it's without the basic hygiene, you're never going to get to the point where prevention of APT is going to make any sense. Let me put it that way.
1: No, no, I think that's fair. And I think, you know, the, the kind of analysis that you do, you know, for a security company with, with all these resources is out of range for for many, 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 if not most of the companies in the right. economy. But it's very instructive. And, you know, one of the, the beautiful things of the My tech framework, right, is it really brings out and, and, and earlier things like, it, you know, the Lockheed Martin kill chain and the mandate APT one, right. th- they're really important to have a model. Yes, you you cannot chase as a defender. You can't chase after millions of unique attacks. Right. And the good news is there aren't millions of unique attacks, right? There's there's millions of repeats of a relatively small number of patterns or types and so forth. And so you you have to have a model of the attacker in order to sensibly define your actions as a defender. Yes. And so in in one sense, I you know I, I talk about CIs this this verb uh, translate right. A lot of what we do is translate. Right. We, we translate this this challenge right millions of data points of badness and the complexity of a miter attack framework at the end of the day, why, why would someone read the Verizon data rich report? I mean it's interesting right It's, it's good reading. it's, it's you know, well well thought through and all that. Absolutely. But at the end of the day you're trying to figure out what to do about it right You're trying to translate it into action. And so the, the the bad news is everyone has to worry about all that stuff the good news is uh, you don't have to uniquely worry about it right there's right. an 80 90 percent that's kind of just applies to you right. and so there's no reason that CIS can't be the catalyst as we try to be for that translation right let's work together let's figure this out now, by the way that's good enough for most of our economy absolutely now for high-risk companies a security company for example and to uh, you know for your role Sean you know, you have to worry about a lot of targeting Right. You're willing and the company is willing to invest a lot more resources in the analysis and the defenses and the management that it takes. And that's OK. But you use the same basis for that. Right. You have the same kind of model. Right. You have data sources. We may have our and we may have data sources that are unique to the security industry or to our geography or you know whatever that we would apply to that. And that's one of the reasons we, we put this, for example, the community defense model in the public. Right. You know, that is it's it's not locked to that data source or any specific data source, right? right? It's really the method that really matters. And so others can take the idea and, and either offer a better idea or use the same approach with different data right. Right, for a different set of problems. So, right. but that, this idea of the the right. APT and you know stuff is really important. And, I, and I'm with you, right? You're, it's what you're gonna find, and this is based on my history, 80, 90% of what you're gonna find is you still need to do the basics. Right, right You still need to have visibility. you still need to patch you still need to control your administrative privilege and do all these things. And uh, any sensible bad guy operates in the noise with everybody else anyway, right the, the attack frameworks and those models remind us attackers don't do one magic step. They cleverly compose right their tradecraft is to put together a lot of things yeah. and everything they do requires resources or time as a threat of exposure, could be blocked, could be detected, could be logged. And so as a defender, that's our model, right? Is to understand them well enough for folks like you to make sensible choices. You're not going to stop every stage in every possible way. You're going to say, I I can't afford a single layer of defense. I want to have multiple layer defenses and I want to cost effectively manage it. And I want to do it with tools I have you know, or integrating the views that I already have. And so you need to have a a basis for what you might think of as an economic analysis, right, Right. that allows you to look at these things and to turn to your boss with a straight face and say, you know what, we've used the best available resources. We have a model of attackers that we're operating to. And here's what we derive from it. Here's the things we have. Here's the things we need. Here's gaps where we'd like more visibility or another layer would be prudent or or whatever. So so I think that's all part of it And, and having a starting point for that is, is really, I think, uh, uh, an essential part of this, right? Whether it's foundational great. and whether you call it hygiene or, or whatever. I, I also say that, you know, having watched nation state attackers for a long time, um, you know, with, with great respect. I mean, there's very clever people. People love offense, right? It, it sells. Yeah. Defense is like, you, you know, Sean, right? There's nothing lonelier than the uh, defender. Uh, so, uh, but but more more power to you because it's so important. And that's what's kept me in it, by the way. Right. right. I, I love this challenge. You know, it never ends. It's it's uh, and it's, you, you know, the the, the the old tag phrase was, oh, the lucky attacker only has to worry about one thing and the defender has to defend everything. Well, there's a bit of truth to that also, but it's also the importance, right. And the complexity and recognizing it's more than just picking, as you said before, the, this set of controls. It's right. their psychology. There's business management, right? There's the institution of processes and machinery, and you know this this will never end. Uh, Yet, when you get it right, there's nothing more satisfying either than than, I think defense, which keeps folks like you and me, I think, both uh, excited about what we do, but also keep us employed. So that's that's a good thing too. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, uh, you know, I think we'll. Uh, wrap up our time here. It's been a great discussion with you as always. You. Uh, any last thing or lesson or uh, a thought you'd like to leave with the audience about this idea of uh, cyber hygiene or sort of foundational defense?
0: Yeah, no, I think the, um, I think as we've gone through and discussed kind of the approach, you know, that I've taken, again, in some cases, it's, um, you know, that seasoned over many years of trying and failing is, you know, choose the framework that's going to make the most sense to the organization, contextualize the approach, and do it judiciously. And there to your point, there's resources out there to help. And again, CIS is in that space in terms of you're not alone. There there's things to allow you to assist in moving forward. Uh, And you know basically we're a click away, as it were. So that's what I'd leave with.
1: Yeah, very good, Sean. Now I, I would agree with you. I think there's um you know, you, you, it's, this is a, a, a case, you'll, you'll hear the phrase every once in a while, right? We've admired this problem long enough. Right. <laughs> and uh, there's a bit of this. You, you, you could study, you could do complicated risk assessments, you could follow, you know, really astoundingly interesting and uh, complete methodologies. But you really just need to get to work, right? There are foundational things that really are important that will be found as an output of any sensible risk assessment or any security framework or any list of requirements. And so it's more important to get going, I think, on those kinds of things, you know, trying to pick well the things that that um, are both foundational, allow you to build, allow you to show success. As you know, in a job like yours, if you don't show some successes early, uh, you may not generate enough confidence to 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 show successes later. So it's important to to get to work and and uh, and so forth. But I think that's that's all important. I'd say I'll mention one other thing that we're trying to do at CIS to to simplify this problem. You know, we are committed to we're getting flooded, you know, not only that you mentioned supply chain questionnaires, but security frameworks. You know, everyone's in the in the security business now. Right. Right. Lawyers, auditors, regulators, supply chain friends, everybody and everybody is looking over your shoulder. Everyone has a different set of requirements, frameworks you know, uh, whatever list that you need to reply to. From our perspective at CIS, we're committed to helping simplify that problem by producing mappings, right? Authoritative, here's how the CIS controls map to PCI, to the NIST cybersecurity framework, to CMMC, to name it, right? Because if we don't do it and we feel a responsibility because it's part of our simplification job here, then someone else has to. You have to do it on your own. You have to let every auditor figure it out on their own. You have to pay someone to do it for you. And that just doesn't make sense to us. So in, in the name of you know, sort of thinking of this as how do we unite the ecosystem around good practice, we think that's an essential part of our future here. So anyway, so that's I'll close up with that. It's, it's great. Uh, there's there's tons more to, to talk about, Sean, and I really appreciate the chance to bounce ideas off you as a guy who, again, really has a, uh, has had such a, a rich variety of experiences. I've had very few different experiences other than the security wonk stuff but also the the role that you play for CIS, right? As a CISO for a security company, I think gives you a neat perspective on what we do here at CIS. In the future, we'll explore, you know, our role with the uh, the state and locals and our, our nationwide operational mission and some of the things that we can learn from that. Uh, so with that, thanks everyone who's tuned in. It's a pleasure to speak with everyone. We look forward to this. If you have any special topics or things that you're interested in, drop us a note, come visit us at, at uh, cisecurity.org. And again, we're here uh, to, to help bring some clarity to the extent that we can to sort of bring the resources of CIS and our worldwide volunteer army and our uh, many friends and uh, vendor partners uh, to bear, to help uh, simplify the security problem on your behalf. So
0: thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.